Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Jean-François Claude regularly shares his lived experience of persistent depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder as a bilingual mental health keynote speaker and panelist, leveraging the power of storytelling to help reduce the stigma of mental illness. In 2017, for his advocacy work and anti-stigma efforts in the areas of men's mental health, Jean-François was awarded a Meritus Service Award by His Excellency the Governor General of Canada and was named a leading Canadian difference maker for mental health by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Rob Whitley is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University and a research scientist at the Douglas Research Center. He is the author of a new book, Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health, published by Springer in 2021. He is currently a Fonds de Recherche de Québec Santé Seigneur research scholar and an honorary principal fellow at the University of Melbourne. He has also held honorary appointments at King's College London, Dartmouth Medical School in New Hampshire, and Howard University in Washington, D.C., He has published over 135 academic papers in the field of social and cultural psychiatry and has written over 100 mental health-related articles for lay audiences in diverse venues, including Psychology Today, Huffington Post, the Montreal Gazette, the Vancouver Sun, and National Post. Dr. Whitley is also a video producer and scriptwriter and has produced several documentaries and short fictional films related to mental health that have been featured in film festivals across North America. All right, Mr. Jean-Francois Claude and Dr. Rob Whitley, welcome so much to Thoughts on Record. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Very well. Thank you very much, Pete. I'm so glad to have you both here today. This is a conversation that is very personally meaningful to me, and I just want to give a bit of context to the audience around this. I have certainly, as a man, had my own lifelong struggles with mental illness in a number of areas, some of which I've spoken about on the podcast, some not, but I have often been really good at hiding it. I, I think that would be a surprise to many that know me even quite well. Professionally, I've also done quite a bit of work with many so-called failure-to-launch young men. These, of course, are often young men stuck in the basement playing video games, uh, addicted to cannabis and other substances. I've also worked extensively with military and police populations, which, while of course not being uniformly men, are predominantly men. And I've really appreciated working with men and providing a therapeutic space that I think is often missing in their in their day-to-day lives. Okay, so I just wanted to start off with a bit of a quote from a psychoanalyst and author who I'm a huge fan of, Dr. James Hollis. He tells a story of frequently being invited to speak to women's groups around the psychology of men, which he's written extensively about. And what he conveys is the following. To understand the inner experience of a man, imagine the following set of circumstances. Number one, all the close friends with whom you deeply discuss your marriage, your parents, your children, your worries, your anxieties, your dreams, your insecurities, they're all gone forever. You don't have them anymore. Number two, your emotional connection to yourself and your guiding intuition is largely severed. And number three, Your worth is largely determined by abstract standards of productivity that are determined by others. These, Hollis says, are really key insights into the psychological condition of men, with psychological loneliness and isolation being a key feature of the psychological life of men. So I'd like to get both of your reactions to maybe some of the stuff that I've laid out here. Rob, do you have any thoughts that strike you around James Hollis's observation around the internal psychological life of men? I think that quote that you just gave is really on the topic of male loneliness 
and male loneliness has been quite well studied in social science. There have been surveys in Canada, there have been surveys globally. And interestingly, what these surveys show is that men tend to be lonelier than women and that the loneliness is actually concentrated in the younger age groups of men, men aged about 18 to 35. Uh, and many people are not aware of these statistics. Uh, and there have been a number of variables studied to explain why loneliness is intense in that time period. One is that it's a time when people are building their careers and men particularly are building their careers because uh, we know statistically that men still tend to be the primary breadwinner in a family and that their salary is necessary for to pay the mortgage and to pay the costs of food and, and shelter. Uh, so we know men, for example, are more likely to relocate for work, to live in a city outside of their birthplace. We know men are more likely to work longer hours than women, meaning they're often uh, in the workplace working, trying to impress their boss, trying to ensure security of tenure and to get money. And we know, for example, it's a time when people are dating and trying to find their life partner, maybe the recent changes with social media and online dating. Some reports show that that can be a very alienating experience. So I think that really touches on kind of male loneliness. And we know loneliness is a risk factor for depression. It's a risk factor for anxiety. It's a risk factor for substance use disorder. It's a risk factor for suicide. So um, I think some of the exciting work in psychiatry now is trying to address male loneliness through interventions, which are often group interventions, peer interventions. Uh, so these will be, for example, veterans peer support groups where veterans help each other reintegrate after their discharge from the military. There's things like men's sheds, which I'm sure the listeners are familiar with. These are kind of like youth clubs for older men where men get together and do manufacturing. They, they make tables, they make benches, they repair bikes, they, they do cooking together in a small kind of community uh, building, uh, which you find in Western Canada quite commonly, a bit less frequently in Eastern Canada. Uh, and, and you find uh, other kind of groups like this, which are really helping men. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe Jean-Francois has been involved in some of those or knows some of them in, in, in the Ottawa Gatineau region. Uh, but um, I, I think male loneliness is something we, we as a society really need to talk about more. Yeah, and uh, that, what I found interesting from from that quote, uh, well, there was a couple of things. So, first of all, uh, yes, yeah, certainly in my own experience, you know, once you sort of get into a long term relationship, get married, whatnot, it does seem like our male social circles uh, tend to shrink, and so you know, we 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 tend to sort of have. In terms of discussing, you know, our feelings, those kinds of things, it tends to be with our partner. And so you, you sort of lose that connection that you might have in your early 20s with a, a group of guys that you, you go to the pub with or the bar or whatnot. And, and you know, again, that certainly has been, you know, my, my experience. Um, what I also thought interesting was that uh, he was referencing in particular speaking to groups of women. And certainly in my own mental health journey, um, I, I've had the opportunity to share my story with a variety of audiences. And I, and I have really noticed that when it's sort of a voluntary uh, sign up or registration for an event, the audience is about 80, 85% women, right? So there, there's, even though that, you know, it's advertised that it's, it's a man coming to talk about his own mental health experiences, um, there's there's sort of that lack of connection in terms of how we talk about mental health with men. Absolutely. And, and it's funny, and Hollis, in relaying that quote, talks about how he's been invited to speak to women's groups on many, many, many occasions, and really not once ever invited to 
speak to a group of men, despite being an, someone who's conversant in male mental health or the psychological experience of men. I think that's a, that's a very, very interesting and important observation for sure. So Rob, we've talked a little bit about male loneliness. I wonder if we could perhaps broaden the discussion a little bit to get a sense of what are the common mental health challenges that men experience? Um, so when we talk about mental health challenges, we can focus on specific outcomes such as suicide, substance use disorder, depression, or alternatively or additionally, we can also focus on certain exposures which tend to lead to negative outcomes. And I think to answer your question, I'll just do a bit of both. To start with, we know suicide is 75% of suicides are male. Um, substance use disorder, again, about two in three, three in four cases of substance use disorder addictions are male. We know that men are much less likely to use mental health services than, than women, uh, even when you control for the severity of the illness. Um, so there are a few statistics. But actually, I'd really like to answer your question by looking at some kind of exposures, common exp exposures, which we know can be very harmful to men's mental health. One of them is kind of divorce and separation. So we know that that increases the risk of, of suicide, substance use disorder, and depression. And partly related to what Jean-Francois just said, which has actually statistically been proven many, many times, that when men get married, they tend to kind of turn inward into their family and, and their social networks outside the family become truncated uh, and they get their social and emotional support from the wife and children. So when they get divorced, they're really left very isolated, whereas women tend to keep their kind of extended family and friends. Another risk factor, which we know is very severe for men, is loss of a job or severance or redundancy. So if a man is especially middle-aged and he has his career, he has his job, it's his source of income, um, it, it, it gives stability, it gives meaning and purpose. Um, sadly, in this economy and with COVID-19, it's happening more and more that men are, are losing their job. And that can leave them in a very vulnerable situation. There are other um, cases like this. And, and the common factor behind all these are kind of what I call unwanted life transitions. So a kind of life transition, which is unwanted, which is surprising, which kind of t uh, takes the person completely unaware. Um, that, so there are other things like this. For example, a bereavement we know is a risk factor if you lose your wife or lose somebody, a child, someone very close to you. When you're discharged from the uh, military, uh, especially if it's an involuntary discharge, which you know happens to some people for medical reasons or for reasons of discipline or other reasons. So these unwanted life transitions that I've been saying and writing for many years that this is where we should be targeting support for men uh, because it's kind of an acute, it can lead to acute distress and that could lead to suicidality and substance use and other issues. Rob, I resonate with so much that you've said there. I can tell you as a clinician, the folks who I worry about most are middle-aged men who have just been divorced and or been rendered unemployed for some reason. I really worry about risk of suicide and that the data bears that out. I can also really, really confirm how devastating discharge from the military can be, especially again, if it's unwanted or even if it is wanted. Often military settings or police settings provide a de facto social support network or a family 
and they feel like they've lost their brothers essentially, or some sort of notion of family can be a very, very potent stressor. Uh, Jean-Francois, I was interested from your lens, you know, as an individual and as, as a man, if you reflect on your mental health journey and journey through the system, what have been some of the factors that may have exacerbated uh, some of the challenges that you've experienced or what, what was the fertile ground if there was fertile ground as, as far as you see it in terms of setting the stage for having some, some challenges? For sure. Um, you know, it's, uh, look, my journey, I guess, with mental health, sort of came late and and to touch a bit on on a point that was raised earlier um men do tend to sort of derive a sense of self-worth and, and self-esteem um you know through their work so in, in my situation what ended up happening was i went through a, a major depressive episode at age 40 where a lot of the triggers were actually uh, from a less than ideal work environment and you know that's when it, it I, I hit that brick wall. So if we're talking about sort of barriers, you know, there, from my own experience, I would see a couple of them. First of all, a complete lack of mental health literacy. Like I, I, I did not know anything about mental health, mental illness. Um, it wasn't something that was discussed, you know, uh, in my social circles or even within my own family. And, it, it, you know, so I ended up hitting that brick wall before I reached out to get help. And it was because I had literally, I, I just couldn't go on the way it had been going on. And so from one day to the next, you know, you go see your family doctor and you're put on immediate leave. That's quite a shock to your system. You know, when you generate your self-worth through your job um, and, and, you know, uh, to, to have that literally taken away from one day to the next really contributes to that sense of isolation and, and loneliness and self-doubt. So, so that was a huge challenge. But getting back to the lack of mental health literacy and stigma, here's the thing. I would say it was probably five or six weeks into my uh, sick leave uh, following that uh, diagnosis in 2012 that my folks came over for a barbecue one Saturday afternoon, you know, and my mom, like any typical mom, you know, started asking questions like, how are you doing? You know, are you feeling any better? And in a family that prides itself on its work ethic, of course, the next question was, so when do you think you're going back to work, right? Um, and the honest answers were, I'm not feeling any better. In fact, I think I feel worse. And what I didn't say to her at the time, because I didn't want to needlessly worry her, it wasn't about when I'd be going to the office or back to the office. I was actually thinking along the lines of if, Right. Um, because like literally I felt like my whole world had imploded because of that sense of identity tied to my job. And it's only during this conversation that things sort of came to light because, you know, my mom, first of all, asked me, well, isn't the medication working? Right. And my reaction was, oh, no, no, I'm not on medication. Right. My own stigma towards mental illness. Right. I wouldn't have hesitated to, you know, pop a Tylenol for a headache. But an antidepressant, that was going to mess with my brain and I wasn't going to be touching that stuff, right? And that's when she said to me, she said, well, you know, uh, I've been taking these little pills for my nerves. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> so she's telling me she's on anti-anxiety medication and it has been for the better part of 15 years. And this is the first time I'm hearing about it. And that's why I think it's so important that we have basic mental health literacy so that we can dispel the stigma, have those conversations um, because had I known about that family history, because it goes back, it wasn't just my mom, it was my grandmother, who uh, apparently was hospitalized in the 1950s. But, you know, that was covered up within the family because of the shame, the embarrassment, etc. Um, 
so that basic literacy and the more that we talk about our own experiences of mental health, the more we can start chipping away at the stigma so that people reach out to get the help they need much earlier than we typically do. Such great points. And Jean-Francois, I can, I can confirm as a clinician that one of the biggest challenges when meeting with a client is getting a good family history. And very often what I'll hear are things to the effect of, well, I suspected there was something going on with my dad, or I think there's something with mom. We don't really talk about it. It was never discussed. And typically, the older the client, the, the more profound that that problem tends to be. I, I think younger folks tend to be a bit more open and talking about this, but I can I can absolutely confirm that it's it's not often talked about in families to the detriment of people knowing what's going on with themselves. To, to your point, right? Well, absolutely. And and you know, just thinking back to to then, this is 2012, so 10 years ago. Um, you know, I remember first getting the diagnosis, and I think like anybody, right? You have a second consult with Dr. Google. <laughs> um, I, and I would land on all of these great mental health resource websites, you know, and, and they were sort of broken up by sections, right? Like uh, youth mental health, teen mental health, women's mental health, seniors mental health, indigenous mental health. There was nothing on men's mental health. And so that just further adds to that stigma of being a man diagnosed with a mental illness because you don't see yourself reflected in, in the literature. Now, things have improved since 2012, and we've got some pretty decent sites out there today, like Heads Up Guys out of UBC, for example. But, you know, that just further contributed to the stigma and, and uh, delayed help seeking, I would say. Rob, why does men's mental health feel, feel at times so radioactive a topic to discuss or talk about or to, or to put out there? I mean, I think if you look at the history of the kind of subdiscipline of men's mental health, it's always been a very marginal discipline in psychiatry. I, I think that's partly due to, in the 1990s, the National Institute of Health in the United States, which was one of, one of the big funders, thought leaders in psychiatry, called it the decade of the brain. And we used to have in psychiatry a biopsychosocial model where we would look at biological, psychological, and social factors equally. And some people have said that that's transmogrified into a bio-bio-bio model with the three bios being uh, genetics, neuroscience, and pharmacology. Um, and that has left kind of less room to think about kind of social factors like the, the gendered experience of men and also the gendered experience of women. But I would like to say in a more optimistic tone that I think things have changed quite considerably in the last kind of five or six years. Um, I remember giving presentations on these issues to students in like 2014, 2015, and uh, one or two students actually complained, sent me an email um, or uh, came up to me after the class and said, kind of, why are we talking about this? Kind of men are privileged and men are, um, men, well, I remember one student said to me, men don't have any issues, men are the issue. And I, you know, didn't know what to say really. Um, but, you know, I think after people like Jean-Francois, organizations like the Mental Health Commission of Canada, Beyond Blue in Australia, the UBC team that Jean-Francois talked to earlier, um, lots of small groups and bigger groups pushing in the same direction that I think in the last few years it's now become, there's been a kind of collective awakening that men's mental health is important um, from the public, from researchers, from clinicians, uh, and would like to say that when I talk about these issues, it, it's not only and it's not almost, it's not always wholly men who are talking about this. Um, it's I, I, after I give presentations, I get people come up to me and their wives, their mothers, their daughters, their sisters, their colleagues, their friends, and they say, 
thank you for talking about this. Thank you for writing about this because my husband, my father, my son is experiencing the issues that you're discussing and we really need to bring more attention to this. Okay, just to pick up on this point in Rob or, and or Jean-Francois, feel free to jump in. In fact, I want to get both your takes on this. How can we talk about the realities of men's mental health effectively without alienating the equally unique circumstances and burdens of other groups, including women? And I guess maybe as a part B, like I was reflecting on this this morning when I was putting the questions together. Is there a, a maybe a guilt that men harbor or do all men on some level feel maybe that we have sort of metaphorical blood on our hands as a function of the salient harm men have done and, and do to women? Like I, I just want to explore this dynamic a little bit because I do think that, that there's something going on where we almost will will self-discount our value and, and regard ourselves as disposable. Anyway, I appreciate there's a lot in what I've just put out there, but Jean-Francois, did you want to maybe speak to that piece just a little bit? Sure, and, and I'll be the first to admit that uh, um, I do tend to self-censor myself a little bit uh, when it comes to men's mental health. Um, you know, part of my journey has been actually to be quite active on, on Twitter. It's where I, I did find an amazing mental health community. Um, but I remember when I first brought up the idea of having a Men's Mental Health Awareness Day uh, in Ottawa back in 2014, uh, I was getting slammed on Twitter. Like, you know, what are you doing? Like, you know, everybody's mental, uh, me- me- mental health is important. Why are you focusing on men? And, you know, I was kind of taken aback because... For, the whole point behind it was to just raise awareness around signs and symptoms to be on the lookout for that men may not, you know, uh, understand or equate with a mental health challenge. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, for example, physical symptoms that can manifest themselves around depression, uh, those kinds of things, and and raising that awareness. And even stating, you know, look, there's an issue here because three out of four suicides are men. This is why we need to focus on men's mental health wasn't really, um, you know, uh, enough to sort of fend off, I guess, some of the the, the attacks, if I can put it that way. Um, now, I have noticed a bit of a shift in the online conversation, but inevitably, like, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm just extra careful, especially on social media, because we know how that can <laughs> turn out. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where we need to talk about it. And I think it's just being very uh, considerate and careful in terms of how we present it, uh, as opposed to saying, you know, it should only be about men's mental health. No, of course not. You know, we need to be worried about everybody's mental health, but that shouldn't stop us from looking at specifics as to why men are less likely to seek therapy, right? Like, is it because the therapeutic approach is essentially steeped in, you know, maybe feminine norms, right? Like, I don't know that many guys that would want to, you know, sit down and do eye to eye conversations on on very personal, intimate stuff. But to Rob's earlier point around men's shed and those kinds of things, where men seem to do better in a, I don't want to use therapeutic really necessarily context, but uh, in terms of, I guess, connecting with others and sharing their, their thoughts, feelings, emotions, we tend to do it around an activity right? Uh, It's sort of that shoulder to shoulder, side by side, not staring, you know, straight in the face of somebody uh, to bury your soul. Uh, So so I think that, you know, maybe we need to rethink in terms of how we approach uh, mental health supports for for men. Rob, did you want to speak from your perspective as a person in academia around how we can effectively talk about men's health again without alienating others and also maybe addressing sort of that disposability issue that seems to come up around men? 
Yeah, so um, a bit like Jean-Francois, when I when I started writing about this, I, I wrote an article for the National Post in like 2015, and um, somebody called me up and said, um, somebody's getting fired in the morning, <laughs> because, uh, uh, as a joke, but you know, it's a joke with a hint of truth in it, because um, th- there was a time when talking about men's mental health, you were opening yourself up to accusations that you were... Uh, misogynistic, or you were ignoring the the, the, the problems of women, and uh, and that you were going down a, a path which is uh, kind of professionally um, going to have some repercussions for you. Um, I have heard people say that, and um, that I mean, there have been some colleagues at my university and elsewhere who seem puzzled by why I'm I'm exploring this line of research. But um, I think, like Jean Francois said, it's. You have healthy men. This is an argument I give to anyone who's skeptical. If you have healthy men, you have a healthy society. And if you don't have healthy men, then you're going to have an unhealthy society. Would you rather? Would people rather have a, a thousands of untreated men with mental illness <clears throat> in society uh, with ish, unresolved issues, or would would it be better for for society to have these men in in treatment, getting help, and and leading their life? Uh, trying to reach their full potential so like i said i think uh <clears throat> when you have healthy men you have healthy families you have healthy communities and you have a healthy society and going back to your uh previous kind of question i i have in my own research seen what i call a kind of an ethos of kind of self-sacrifice amongst men with mental health issues an idea that they don't want to be a burden on people they don't want to be a burden on their wife on their children on their family on their employee, and that they feel that they should kind of sacrifice their own well-being to ensure that uh, they can reach their goals of bringing in the family income and supporting the family and, and being professionally uh, successful. Many people have said, you know, I don't want to be a bother to, to my wife. I don't want to go to see a doctor because maybe there's people more serious than me. Um, I, I, I don't want to tell my employee because... Uh, my employee relies on me to get things done and I don't want to be perceived as a bad worker. So so we do certainly see that kind of ethos of self-sacrifice, which has been conditioned into men from an early age. We all know the story of the Titanic. We know the rule of the, of the sea, which is that w- women and children first. Um, we know from what's happening in Ukraine at the moment that the women and children are being evacuated to Poland and other countries, whereas the men are being asked well they're not even being asked i think there's legislation that they, they have to stay and join the military and fight um and that that kind of ethos does permeate into the wider experience of men that in a way that they 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 do feel this kind of disposability or that this this sense of uh, sacrifice is part of an important part of society i just fe- finished reading this book called the evolution of desire by david bus Really, really interesting book and talking about uh, gendered mate strategies and sort of the research on this. And one of the interesting points that he made is that women have certainly grown tired of being sex objects and men have likewise grown tired of being success objects. And you look at the sort of ways that men and women select their mates. Of course, these are broad strokes and there's lots of specific uh, examples that won't conform to this. But my point of bringing this up is that I I have a deep conviction that men and women need to do a better job of really deeply understanding the experience of the other and understanding the very unique pressures that each experiences. And it's not a contest in terms of who is experiencing more or, or less damage. It's more about understanding the experience 
of either gender and to really sort of craft a, a better sense of empathy for what each other goes through. I think taking a, a point scoring approach is not going to get us too far down the road and just lead to division polarization. And I think that's true of just humans in general. So I'm not sure if either of you had a thought on that. But to me, it really feels like the, the way forward is to come together around understanding the, the unique burden that each party must bear as they make their way through life, which is difficult enough as is. I mean, I can quickly say something. I can't remember the name of the of the individual, but there was a um, a woman a few years ago who wrote a book uh, which was based on her experience where she conducted an interesting social experiment where she basically dressed as a man, uh, wore makeup and other uh, costumes that made her look like a man and went out into, into society with the aim of writing a book showing how easy and privileged it is to be a man. And this person actually suspended her experiment after a few days because she found it so surprising how difficult men have it. And how, for example, you know, rude other men were to, to some men, or how um, uh, you know certain ways of of staring and aggression, like you know, not not overt aggression, but more covert aggression. And and she wrote about all this kind of stuff. So um, it was a very interesting book. I I can't remember the title, but uh, um, I, I think there certainly is a need to uh, the trendy word in psychology, intersubjectivity, to kind of understand the subjectivity of of other people and to try and adjust our actions and our uh, our structures of society accordingly. Jean-Francois, is there anything that you wanted to add before I move along to the next uh, question? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, it's a, a challenge around uh, taking that empathetic approach in the sense that, you know, we're, men are basically culturally conditioned in a competitive environment, right? And so, uh, it, it almost takes a, an unlearning and a relearning that, you know, in order to better understand what are the challenges that other genders face and, and how we can sort of work together towards a common cause. You know, because when you think about it, I've seen stats as high as one in two Canadians, you know, will face a, a mental health issue or, or illness by, by age 40. And yet we haven't coalesced, for example, as a voting bloc to demand that mental health care be on par with physical health, right? And so you've got that added layer in terms of barriers to mental health um, that is a financial one. You know, not everybody can afford the, you know, whatever, 220 bucks a psychologist in Ontario is the average rate, I think, uh, per hour. And, uh, you know, even those of us who may benefit from, you know, insurance coverage through our employer, uh, that barely covers, you know, eight sessions or 10 sessions. And that's just really not enough to you know, get into the, the the heart of whatever issue it is that that needs uh, to to be resolved uh, in, in as part of a treatment plan. So, I mean, I guess in some respects, it's it's considering how we can start having those conversations in in a, a non-competitive way, where it's not about pitting you know women's mental health groups versus men's mental health groups, you know, versus you know other groups. It's a challenge, and and. Uh, there's no sort of silver bullet to resolving that so that we can move forward. No, these are certainly complex issues, and it certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't discuss them. We should learn how to discuss them and to be able to manage the activation that could potentially come up in the context of some of these uh, difficult conversations. But there, I, I believe the moment that communication breaks down, that's when bad things start to happen. We should always be reaching out and having, and having these uh, conversations. This feels like a good time to bring in uh, the notion of, and I'm air quoting here, toxic masculinity. 
This is a word that's tossed around quite a bit. Rob, I know you've wrote about this just a little bit in some of the material that I peruse in preparation for this podcast today. Rob, what is toxic masculinity regarded as and what might be problematic with respect to the use of this term as far as you're concerned? Um, I mean, toxic masculinity is not a word that I use. Um, So I would feel somewhat remiss in defining it because I think it would be better to have someone on your show who kind of uses it regularly who who could explain what they mean by it i mean what what i have written for example is that in the i I mentioned right at the beginning there's been a bit of a collective awakening about men's mental health and there's much more discussion and talk about men's mental health on social media in society and in academia and very in workplaces Um, and what i have said is that there seems to be a an erroneous but popular explanation that men are stubbornly silent due to a self-defeating kind of toxic masculinity and therefore we should address our interventions and our programs to try and overcome this kind of toxic masculinity um what i have written is that's a very uh simplistic kind of monocausal explanation of a very complex set of variables um we know that there are many reasons why men do not talk about their mental health or seek treatment um one is uh, as Jean-Francois said the stigma within the family sometimes that the, 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 the your parents your your wife your children your siblings they don't want to know they 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 want to want you to be going to work and being a success in the eyes of the world and bringing good money and not every family is like that but there we do hear that there are many men who feel that their family are like that um two is stigma in the workplace uh we do know that some employees uh, equate mental illness with malingering, with laziness, with uh, with not pulling your weight, and that if you have mental health issues, a note will be put in your personnel file, and um, you'll be overlooked for promotion and, and pay rises, etc. Um, uh, and and there are many other uh, financial, practical, and personal reasons why people will not talk about their mental health. Um, so in any f- field of psychiatry or more or less any with very few exceptions we try and avo- avoid kind of monocausal explanations uh, we talk about a web of causation uh, that they're biological psychological social um, variables interacting um, and when we're t- talking about mental health or conversation is occurring about mental health um, it, i don't think it's helpful to, to come from a starting point that there's a thing called toxic masculinity and that it's uh, a man, by definition, may be a purveyor of toxic masculinity. I think the nuance that you brought in there, Rob, is so important, and it really is a really, really important lens on that turn of phrase. Jean-Francois, what's your reaction as a man to hearing the phrase toxic masculinity? Honestly, it doesn't sit well with me, and I, I really appreciated Rob's nuancing around that term. Um, and, you know, in order to have maybe a more productive conversation around, you know, the, the, the pitfalls, I guess, of traditional masculinity and, and finding a way to maybe redefining a new masculinity, masculinity, right? Um, so what I mean by traditional masculinity is sort of that stoicism, right? Where men don't show any weakness, right? Uh, so it's, it's about posturing, I guess, in, in some respects. Um, it's about, you know, sucking it up, right? Um, being uh, rational and logical and, and, you know, shying away from emotional reactions. And, you know, part, I think, of the challenge in redefining a new masculinity is that, you know, we, we need to sort of 
bring in that whole aspect of men's um, uh, men's emotions. And and frankly, I think teaching men to name their emotions, right? You know, it's 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 one of those things where there's such a myriad of emotions that we can feel or experience on any given day, whether you have a mental health challenge or not. And yet we tend to boil it down to happy, sad, angry, and that's pretty much it, right? Um, and so particularly around anger, right? I mean, what, what a lot of people don't realize, and, and I would say even men in particular, is that anger can actually be symptomatic of something like depression. Certainly when I was first diagnosed with depression, I, I wasn't very accepting of it as a diagnosis because in my mind, again, that lack of mental health literacy, depression wasn't something that men got. It was a woman's illness. That was my perception 10 years ago, not knowing anything. Because to me, it was about crying. It was about sadness, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas we know that depression can manifest itself very differently in men through irritability, anger, um, you know, risky behaviors, uh, increased alcohol consumption, for example, you know, um, uh, overworking. Um, certainly that's how I was sort of numbing my emotions 10 years ago. I was spending more and more time in the office. Um, so, you know, when I do hear toxic masculinity, it's it gets my back up because it tends to sort of lump an entire gender into something that is not viewed as positive. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I've learned, especially on social media, you know, to not bite at, at that kind of thing and, and try to look beyond the, the person's use of that expression to see what is exactly the point they're trying to make and, and how I might be able to either counter it or, or get them thinking uh, slightly differently about why, you know, men's mental health needs to be addressed. And it's not necessarily about toxic masculinity. Really appreciate both of your perspectives on that. There's a psychotherapist named Terry Real. He's written a number of books. I think it's called, I don't want to, I literally called, I don't want to talk about it, I believe is what the book is called. And he makes the point that when men are activated, when they feel defective or emotionally de deprived, they often don't become sad. They become entitled and grandiose. Uh, you get that irritability, anger. And so I think it's important to understand that emotional reactions of any kind that are problematic are almost always rooted in deflection and management of pain as opposed to overtly wanting to be a giant asshole. And it might have asshole consequences in real life for those who love the person and, and those around them. But I, I can tell you as a clinician, when you get under the hood and look at, at people's behaviors, even if they're really painful to them and to those around them, there's often very much a reservoir of pain below that. So when you look at the behavior, it's like, it's not necessarily why the behavior, it's like, why the pain? What has that person been experienced or what do they have, what have they had to navigate in their life that has led them to act in this extreme way as a way of regulating their own internal experience? So that's, I guess just one thought. Now, I want to put one other thought out there as well. Actually, it's more of a question. What do men need to do in order to... What do men need to do better? Like, how can we take responsibility for this challenge? Like, we've noted challenges around connecting with emotions or being vulnerable. Although, I have some thoughts on that in a second, which I'll follow up with. But where do men need to sort of take ownership and take responsibility for the conundrum that we find ourselves in from a mental health perspective. Rob, did you have a, a thought on that and on, on sort of maybe constructive or concrete ways of looking at this that men can internalize and, and bring forward into the world? You said there was, I think there was a book that was called or the, a phrase that was used by a, an academic saying, I do not want to talk about it. And I'd like to follow up on that to answer your question in a roundabout way, which so I've written about this in, in my own book and in my own writings. 
when a conversation occurs, there is a sender and there is a receiver, or there is an initiator and there is a follower. So, so for this podcast, you know, you contacted me, you initiated this, you're the sender, and I'm I'm listening and I'm answering your questions. And there's a receiver, and at least from my perspective, this has been a very enjoyable, pleasant uh, conversation, and the minutes have gone very quickly. Um, but we do know from the research I've done and other people have done that there seems to be an assumption in telling men, well, you need to talk more about your mental health. You need to reach out more. You need to discuss this with people. That There seems to be an assumption that there's a kind of reservoir of competent, empathic and willing people <clears throat> who are willing to listen to what men with mental health issues have to say to digest it and to help them and point them on their way. And, and my research shows that isn't actually always the case. That, uh, and we do know from other research that even men who have killed themselves, that kind of 80% of them have talked about it with a, either a doctor or a family member or friend beforehand. Uh, and, and this goes back to Jean-Francois's point earlier that as a society, individuals kind of lack mental health literacy. Uh, we have these new programs in schools called social-emotional learning, which are helping uh, young people learn how to kind of process their emotion and how to be active listeners, good listeners. Um, so I think we need to kind of expand the question, you know, what can men do more to think that there are, you know, there's certainly men um, with mental health issues. There, there are things they can do to help their own recovery. Uh, but as a society, the kind of the listening, uh, the reception of men with mental health issues, the services that are there for men need to be diversified and need to be improved because unless we do that, for, for many men, they feel they're talking to a brick wall when they raise up these issues. That, that I just wrote an article about this, that, that many men in my studies say they've told their family, they've told their employee, they've told their friends, uh, and they, instead of receiving empathy and compassion and support, they've received judgment, they've, they've received uh, 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 opprobrium, and sometimes they've received you know, hostility and, and concern. They've been stereotyped as a threat and a danger and as someone who is uh, uh, not good for the morale of the workplace or the family. I'm absolutely going to come back to the vulnerability piece and some of the problems that men have experienced in the in the course of being vulnerable. But first, before I do that, Jean-Francois, did you want to comment on maybe where you think men could take up this challenge or where what are steps that men could take to move the ball down the field a little bit? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think it, it really starts with uh, a self-awareness piece, um, but it certainly resonated with me uh, the way you introduced sort of this topic. Uh, in that I, I recognize that that's my own automatic reaction when something's wrong, you know, and, and my wife asks me about it, I will tend to say, I don't want to talk about it. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, part of the skills that I guess I've picked up in, in learning to manage my, my own mental health conditions that are uh, persistent depressive disorder and, and generalized anxiety disorder is that by taking that step away and, and processing it uh, sort of... Uh, uh, internally, you know, I, I am able to sort of challenge my initial assumptions and sort of reframe what is actually irritating me or, or whatever the case may be. But I think part of it too is, is maybe we need to rethink in terms of the language even that we use and the approaches that we use when talking about men's mental health. Because certain terms, you know, will have a certain connotation for men. So for example, like a therapist, right? 
right from the get-go, I think a lot of guys would just go, yeah, no, that's not for me. I don't need that. Well, what if we reframed it around like a life coach or, you know, um, it's, 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 it's can seem very simplistic, but language is extremely powerful. And so um, it is about building a set of skills um, that if we, you know, may not have been part of our uh, upbringing or our cultural conditioning, um, and, and, and that's why like, I, I work in workplace mental health and, and it, it really sort of gets my back up when I hear that, you know, like empathy and uh, emotional intelligence are soft skills. Uh, no, they're not. They're actually really hard. <laughs> and yet we, we, we need more of those skills in workplaces, um, in, in sort of maybe traditionally male dominated industries and, and those kinds of things. Um, because at the end of the day, we are whole human beings that have a you know a whole um, package of, of emotions, experiences that we bring into work, for example. Like you can't just check your emotions or your mental health at the door when you show up at work or in a, in a social context uh, or, or whatnot. And, and so, you know, rethinking approaches around um, how to, quote unquote, treat men's mental health. Um, and, and maybe it's around looking at informal support groups. Um, so again, there's been an allusion to men's shed. Um, just in my own life, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, last winter, you know, heading into a winter with COVID-19 and lockdowns and, and all those kinds of things, I was concerned about my own mental health. Um, I, I will typically experience a bit of a low. I, I don't have seasonal affective disorder per se, but, you know, the winters can be long. And um, now I'm blessed, privileged, however you want to put it, to live just outside the city limits within, within Ottawa um, on a nice piece of property, three acres, wooded area. And uh, I decided I was going to tap the maple trees on my property for the very first time. Um, so that gave me something to look forward to to get through to the winter. But it became an informal support kind of mechanism for me. Because on a weekly basis, I had to boil that sap down to make the syrup, right? So I would invite a male buddy to come over, come and have a beer, come and feed the fire. We'll, we'll chit chat. And I've had, you know, some great connections or reestablishing some connections that, uh, uh, you know, that I hadn't really nurtured uh, in previous years. So, so th those are sort of my initial thoughts is how do we sort of reframe what uh, mental health treatment looks like for men? I think within the right context, I think something I felt like men could do is to challenge each other to be more vulnerable. And I'm not talking maybe in a group of 30 men, I'm talking about in a group of maybe, you know, three or four buddies, right? Maybe taking the lead and being a bit courageous with respect to talking about what's going on or expressing love for their friends or things that men typically don't do, like might get a punch in the shoulder. Or, I love you, dude. And it, and it said, you know, a little bit surfacey, the, the intent is implied, but to really look your friends in the eye and say, you guys make my life so much better. I love you guys. Like men just typically don't talk like that. But if you can get to a place of speaking like that, man, could it ever make your relationships a lot more meaningful? And I think it gives a window into some of the intimacy and closeness that women may enjoy in their relationships just a little bit more intuitively. So I think men can challenge themselves within their small friend groups to maybe try to grow together and to to take more chances. I'm not sure what you what you feel about that, but that's that's certainly something I've been working on with my friends is really <laughs> everyone hates being a friend with a psychologist, by the way. <laughs> but but in all seriousness, I do try to, you know, put it out there as a challenge. Like, hey, let's try and grow as humans together, especially as men together, and, and see what life could feel like. I'm not sure if, I, Rob, if you had a thought on that or? 
Uh, I mean, definitely, it brings up the wider issue of kind of male friendships, which um, we do know statistically are kind of declining, um, especially as men get older. We talked about this right at the beginning, like, um, you know, men are more likely to relocate for work, to, to work longer hours, um, uh, more likely to kind of turn inwards into their nuclear family with their um, wife and uh, children. Um, and and that it has been written in kind of cultural psychiatry that this is a particularly um, kind of Euro Euro American Euro Canadian ph- phenomena, um, and that men of kind of uh, minority from minority backgrounds, uh, uh, Latino backgrounds, or, or from the Caribbean or Africa, that this is less of a uh, less of a um, phenomena. That they they tend to more kind of keep their friendships, have an extended family, are going to play dominoes or to a play soccer on the Saturday or Sunday with their male friends. Um, and, and we do know that actually minority men have kind of lower suicide rates, lower substance use from Africa and from Asia and from uh, South America than, than kind of white Caucasian men. Um, so I, I did a podcast the other day for another organization and, and said, um, you know, there's something also perhaps about the individualistic kind of ethos of North America and of, of, of the United States in particular, which does permeate into Canada um, somewhat, uh, and that we can learn from uh, the, the kind of some of the general behavior, some of the generic uh, patterns that we see in, in the kind of minority cultures and communities. Jean-Francois, what do you think about the notion of maybe leveraging male friendships as a antidote or buffering a protective factor around men's mental health? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm a firm believer that um, I'm going to use the term peer support, but I mean it in an informal uh, sense, right? Not a formal program. So yeah. And, and, you know, I guess it's, it's up to each and every one of us individually to sort of take it upon ourselves to reach out a bit more often, even if it's just a quick text to a friend you haven't, you know, chatted with in a while. Uh, just thought I'd check in how you doing and, you know, what's new, uh, those kinds of things. But I, I thought Rob's point was was interesting um, around cultural differences and that kind of thing, because, you know, I'm, as we're talking, I'm sort of thinking back to my own childhood and my own sort of, you know, family circumstances. So, you know, uh, my name's a dead giveaway, French Canadian. So like m- my parents are from huge families. And what happens is that growing up, the social circle really was the extended family. Like my friends were basically my my cousins, right? My mom was one of 11 kids. My dad was one of seven. But then, you know, we we become adults, you know, the, all the cousins, and we lose those contacts, right? Um, so so that, that social circle does shrink quite a bit, you know? And, and, and the other thing too is, is I would wager that, you know, most men don't have a lot of long-standing friendships, right? That they still hang out with, you know, in their 50s with somebody that they went to school with. Um, because we sort of take on our our wives or our partner's friends, you know, uh, so we develop new friendships, which is great. Um, but sometimes it's sort of that, that that connection that you need with somebody who's known you the longest, right? Um, and, and certainly just looking at my own circumstances, like I have two of those buddies that I don't see as often as I should. Um, so this conversation is a good reminder that I should reach out to them uh, uh, and, and see how they're doing. I totally agree. I have, I've been very blessed, I would say, to have, I'm going to say maybe four or five guys who I've known for varying lengths of time, some, some going back to kindergarten four, all the way through to early university. And I find it so useful to have people who have known me from the very beginning 
there, there's an honesty there. There's an accountability there. And no matter what kind of professional journey that I've been on, I'm always kind of the, uh, weird dude from grade seven that they met in September or whatever. So I, I think there's huge value in being grounded in that and also feeling safe. in it. it's like, Oh, there's someone who knows how weird and strange I am. And yet they've stuck around for, you know, 40 something years. There's something very grounding and secure in that. So we've been making a big deal about the importance of men being vulnerable, but certainly as a clinician, I have many, many, many sad examples of where, Men in particular have been vulnerable in the workplace, particularly in military or police settings, and they have just been absolutely pinned to the wall and had you know really terrible things happen to them, either you know psychologically or professionally. Uh, it, it, military and police clients will often talk about this idea of being a broken toy. That's sort of the lingo, right? That as soon as you disclose having depression, PTSD, whatnot, you automatically lose your use of force privileges. Uh, you're, you're rendered to desk job counting paper clips, as I've often heard uh, my clients say. There's a mistrust that you're going to go, quote unquote, postal and start shooting people. So I've learned the hard way to counsel my clients to be very, very careful about how they talk about their mental health challenges. And, and so when you plug a healthy internal mentality into a dysfunctional cultural mentality, there can be like a real clash and tension that exists there. So Robin, I'm not sure if you want to comment that from a research or academic perspective, what is there literature around uh, sort of work cultures and, and how they can conspire indirectly or directly to impact the, the mental health of men? Yeah, most definitely. I, I can attest to your summary that if uh, many men in my studies who have worked in the military, the police, oil, gas, uh, transport services, um, even manufacturing where there's access to like toxic chemicals or to dangerous uh, machinery and objects, uh, that they feel it would be professional suicide to talk about mental health issues or to disclose a mental health problem. Um, and concerns, you know, sometimes people in smaller towns are worried uh, that they, if they go to a psychiatric clinic or they go to a therapist that somebody will drive past and, and see them and, um, or that the therapist, you know, even though therapists are obviously bound by confidentiality, maybe they're married to the, uh, one of the managers at the local plant and they're worried word will get out or their, their brother works uh, they're on the hockey team with the brother. Um, so there are very, very legitimate concerns amongst men in certain industries that they're will be repercussions if they reveal to someone in our, in that society or in their workplace that they have mental health issues. I've written that in my book that many men make a kind of cost-benefit analysis uh, in these situations and they feel, well, my mental health is bad, I need help. But if I go for help and I take time off work and my supervisor finds out, I might get the mental health help, but then that might affect my my position as an employee, it might put my job under threat, put the chance of promotion and pay rise under threat. We're in a period where there's high inflation, where property prices are going through the roof, where we now have this war, which is going to lead to even further uh, price rises. Some 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 men are saying to themselves, you know, I'd, I'd rather suck it up because this is uh, the, the costs outweigh the benefits. And um, Romeo Dallaire, um, who's you know a famous former military uh, staff officer, uh, writes about this in his autobiography. I, I read that a few years ago. At how in the in the um, DND and in Canadian Armed Forces, 
you know, there is certainly this uh, mentality and he was shunted into kind of office jobs that he didn't really want, despite having lots of qualifications um, and ex- ex- field experience in, in the military. So it is something that we need to kind of work to reform and to change kind of workplace cultures. And, and there are people, people like Jean-Francois, people out there, uh, the Mental Health Commission of Canada is doing kind of workplace programs. Uh, there, there are lots of people out there slowly chipping away, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Jean-Francois, I want to get your take in a second, but I just want to make a point before I forget it. I've very often had the experience with police officer clients in particular where we do the work together. They recover from trauma, depression, whatever, substance use, whatever's been going on. And they unfortunately come to the conclusion that in order to maintain my health and to avoid having another operational stress injury, I, I cannot put myself back into that situation because the the determinants of health within the workplace are such that I am an inviting injury back into my life if I go back. And it, the conditions are so psychologically unhealthy that I have no, if I want to maintain the gains that I've made, there's no possibility of me going back. And that's a real loss for people because often I have clients who are like, I love the job. I love doing the work. I love working with people. But the conditions are such that I will lose all the gains that I've made within a month if I go back. And that's often my recommendation as well. So just want to put that thought out there. Uh, Jean-Francois, from, you, you must have a very interesting lens on this, I think, both as a individual and, a, and as a professional. What, what's your take on men's experience of being vulnerable around talking about what's going on as far as the professional? Sure. A, a couple of points that I want to pick up on, on what Rob was saying and, and, to, and to what you just uh, shared as well. Um, I, I thought it was interesting about how you know, in smaller communities in terms of the concerns one would have about, um, you know, going to a therapist and, and you know, that kind of thing. Because it, it, it made me smile just thinking back to my very first experience after being put off work. You know, I reached out to our employee assistance program. I set up, you know, uh, an appointment with a, with a counselor. And I remember that this is in a suburban community. I remember pulling up to in a person's home. And I, I pulled up on the street and I literally looked around to make, sh- to make sure that nobody that I knew was around before I walked into the house. Like there was, there was nothing indicating that this was a therapy center or anything like that, but it was just sort of the, again, that shame, that non-acceptance at the time uh, of what I was going through. Um, now, you know, in terms of my own sort of professional uh, background, it's not military, it's not police, but certainly in terms of workplace uh, issues and concerns about disclosure, I made a decision at one point, roughly about two years uh, after my initial diagnosis, and I was, you know, well on, on my path to recovery from that major depressive episode, to start sharing my story. And um uh, doing so in the workplace, but it it was not an easy decision to make, and and also I would argue it's not for everybody to make such a decision. Even to this day, years later, now that we've been talking for a number of years about mental health in the workplace, there's still a lot of stigma. We've made a bit of progress, but I often get that question: Should I disclose to my manager that I I experience mental health? And I keep saying that's a very individual decision. I don't know what your relationship is with your manager. Will you have that support? Now, I was blessed in that when I went through that first experience in 2012, um, that I did get good support from my manager. And uh, that allowed me to actually return to work more quickly than than a lot of folks might have. Um, So I was off work for two and a half months before doing a progressive return to work. But, But key to that was the support of my manager and the fact that 
that manager recognized very early on that I would not be going back to work if I was thrown right back into the exact same job, doing the same thing, dealing with the the same sort of toxic clients that we were dealing with. Um, And so now, again, I, I work for the federal government. So it's a huge organization. And with the help of my manager, I was able to get an assignment in a different area, better positive work environment that really helped me with my recovery from, from that major depressive episode. So it, it, it is a challenge in terms of whether or not to disclose in the workplace. I think that's very situational even to, to, to this day. I would say that partially what helped me decide that, you know what, I was going to start openly sharing my story in the workplace was that I I came to the realization that at the end of the day, in terms of career progression or whatnot, I wouldn't want to go work somewhere where they were not accepting of the fact that I had, you know, uh, mental health challenges. And, and, And yet... So by making that decision, I guess there was a certain element of freedom, right? Uh, in that I was less concerned about, you know, that next job opportunity. Now, again, I'll acknowledge that, you know, um, uh, I have a fair amount of job security, so I don't have the exact same concerns that, you know, others might. But, you know, even then, I mean, that can be equally bad because if there's a decision made that, you know, you're no longer trustworthy or no longer able to, to be that high performer because you've gone through a mental health issue, um, you can just as easily be shelved, which is worse, <laughs> uh, I would argue, than, than you know, uh, being refused a promotion or something like that, you know, uh, uh, because of what you've experienced and that you've been open about it. Um, but, you know, I guess the one last point I'd make about that is I think that going through this global pandemic um, and these lockdowns and a lot of people working from home for, for, for those who who are able to, you know, I, I think there's been a bit of a silver lining around these conversations of mental health in the workplace and that we're, we're starting to see a bit more of a shift around uh, recognizing the, the importance of, of, of empathy, the importance of, um, of, of giving employees the tools so that they can sort of self-manage their mental health, but also on the flip side, looking at the workplace factors that are uh, contributing to, to ill mental health. This is probably a question I, I wish I had asked at the very beginning, and Rob, I'll throw this out to you first. What are some of maybe the common or most common misconceptions that clinicians and or the average pers- average layperson may hold with respect to men's mental health? What, what are the illusions that we are laboring under as far as men's mental health goes? Uh, I think one of the common illusions about men's mental health is that men do not want to talk about their issues and do not want to talk about their history and their life experience and their and their failures and successes and challenges and 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 things that have occurred in their life. Um, there was a, a documentary producer, um, and uh, I also uh, on the side I produce documentaries, so I, I I put a lot of effort into learning the kind of skill and craft of documentary production. And I, I, his name fails me, but um, he said every every human wants to tell their story. Uh, and talk about their life, but only to the right person. And I think the the key thing in men's mental health is trying to organize uh, a mental health system as well as a kind of uh, adjunct support system coming from civil society, where men can meet people who uh, uh, and that, who they can tell their story to and talk about their life and challenges, and that that person is the right person. One would hope that 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 therapists would kind of fall into that category. But we do know from research that many men report a 
negative experience in therapy, going through the door, the, some of the assumptions the therapists have, some of the uh, techniques that they're using to try and um, uh, to, to try and help them advance their mental health goes back to what Jean-Francois said a while ago. Maybe there's something inherently objectionable for many men about sitting face-to-face across a table, looking somebody in the eyes, talking about your life experience. And just to go back to what Jean-Francois said about the importance of kind of shoulder-to-shoulder um, healing or shoulder-to-shoulder programs where we know that with trust that these kind of programs like Men's Sheds where over time you build trust with others, people are, are certainly willing to then disclose and talk about their issues once they've had time to scope out you know, which person is on my wavelength, which person seems to be sympathetic, which person has a similar life experience to me and therefore is going to get it when I talk about you know, my time in the police, my time in the military, my time on the fishing boat. Um, and that, that shoulder-to-shoulder healing, it, it really does build on kind of male proclivities that we learn from a young age. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I used to go fishing with my dad and, you know, we'd sit on the end of the pier, shoulder-to-shoulder, we'd talk about things. Go, going driving with, with some of my friends when I was younger, you know, someone's driving, I'm sitting in the passenger seat. Sometimes that's when we have the most insightful conversations and we're talking about things. Repairing cars, uh, repairing things in, in the sh- in the in, in the yard and the shed. Um, uh, again, it's our, it's when you do those activities either during or after when you're having the beer, when you've built some kind of common bond, that those conversations are happening. So um, uh, I think that's the kind of biggest assumption and illusion that's out there. Um, it, it's creating the right environment and, and and ensuring the the professional workforce of clinicians are trained in a manner that. Uh, and allowed to operate in a manner that allows men to kind of talk. I think that's such an important point. And as you were talking, I was reflecting on my extensive work with male clients. And you know what, even, of course, the clinical training is important, but I think more than anything in those situations, I value my experiences having played a lot of hockey, playing in bands, uh, and generally just doing a lot of quote-unquote dude things. And often my therapy with men is is very much more like, two guys chatting without the beer, basically. And, um, you know, you got to swear with them. You got to tell the, you know, the bad jokes. And, you know, it's, it has a very different look and feel. And, and by the way, I slip in a little bit of therapy here and there when I, when there's the moment to do so. And when I feel like the, the door is open, but there's a lot of different rapport building that you have to do with prototypically male clients than you typically, than you would with maybe the average consumer that might come in. So Rob, your, your point is so well taken. That's been exactly my experience. And the feedback that I get from clients, they'll, they'll say things to the effect of like, um, it's like, I'm not even talking to a psychologist, which, <laughs> which is, which is, was, I, I, you could take it in a couple of ways, but I take it as a compliment and I know, and I know they meet it as such right? Because it, it just felt comfortable. And it just felt like talking to another man about what's going on for them. And it didn't have all the sort of, how do you feel about that? Like some of the stereotypes that we harbor about therapy. Jean-Francois, did you want to comment on this topic, maybe misconceptions or, or just anything that's been said uh, in, 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 in Rob's comments or what I had said? Yeah, I know for, for sure. It's, um, it made me smile because, you know, it's ultimately, I think men will open up and share but it's it it's it takes time to sort of establish that trust relationship, and the way you know our, our mental health care system is structured, um, it it doesn't lend itself very well to that, right? Like uh, it, it can take you know I don't know 10, 12 sessions to sort of get into a groove with a with a, a psychologist or, or counselor or whatnot, um, and you know again because it's a pay model that'll be restrictive for for many. 
Um, you know, and, and I'll admit that, you know, I've kind of dropped out from, you know, using counselors or psychologists. Um, you know, I, I've been managing in other ways. Um, but part of it has been, you know, that it didn't seem to work for me. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that I am not willing to try it again. Um, but, you know, if there was a, a, a male psychologist out there who would say, you know what, we can go fishing twice a week <laughs> or whatever uh, for an hour or, you know, come and sit by the, the campfire, um, you know, that's the kind of therapy I could probably get more into, you know, as opposed to going to a, a downtown office or in somebody's home. Um, you know, it, it's in other words, meeting me where I'm at as opposed to bringing me over to. Um, that space kind of thing. Oh, I think that would be so great. Immediately what comes to mind is the cost prohibitiveness of that, right? It's like paying the clinician to drive there and then to, you know, go out in the boat and like, it would just be so expensive just in, in real life. But I absolutely agree. Like that kind of a model would be, would be so uh, interesting to explore. Rob, is there any sort of cutting edge quote unquote, with respect to crafting services for men in the mental health space? Are there innovations taking place that map onto some of the things that Jean-Francois has just said? Yeah, most definitely. I was nodding uh, vigorously when uh, Jean-Francois was just uh, giving his, uh, uh, his comments on that previous question, uh, because um, I have a whole chapter in my book on kind of promising interventions for men. And uh, some of the interesting research has happened uh, very recently is on what's known as kind of bushcraft interventions or wilderness interventions uh, that, that, that men will go out into the, into the wilderness for two or three days and, and the, the older men or maybe the more experienced men will teach other men like how to fish, how to gut a fish, how to make a, a fire, how to build some shelter, uh, teach them, you know, these are the mushrooms that you can eat, these are the mushrooms that will kill you, these are the mushrooms that are going to get you high, um, foraging, uh, and these programs are happening kind of all over North America, actually often inspired by kind of indigenous ways of healing from like Australia and Canada and the US, that, that this is what the elders used to do to younger people with, with kind of mental health difficulties to kind of reinsert them back into uh, the collective and to experience camaraderie and to experience contact with nature. Uh, and, and the early interventions are showing that these kind of bushcraft wilderness interventions are like, can be very helpful for men. Um, getting in touch with other men, getting in touch with the land, getting them away from their screen and their computer and from environments which might, whether it's work or family, that might be a bit stressful or toxic in some ways. Um, so, uh, and you can have very different types of wilderness interventions. There are those which involve like, you know, fishing and hunting, and, uh, but there are others which are kind of going into the wilderness, setting up cameras, trying to take pictures of uh, coyotes or bears and, you know, making a mini documentary afterwards or, um, ones which are inspired more by um, uh, kind of spiritual. You, you go out and you have a lot of silence. And it's a bit like a retreat. Um, and, and like I said, some are led by kind of psychologists like you, Owen, and some are more kind of led by just peer support or well-meaning people, ex-military people. Um, and, and I think they're, they're really helpful. And also just the spirit behind them, as Jean-Francois said, so many people in my research studies said, I, I wish my psychologist, instead of sitting in the office, that we could just go for a walk around the local park and for that hour and sit on a bench and you know talk talk like that rather than with this kind of intense eye contact and the um with their voice going up a semitone every time they're reacting to my my comments and and the kind of un unnatural use of my name at the end of every sentence like why can't we just be a bit more real and speak a bit more real 
Oh, that's so interesting. And I guess it's worth pointing out too that, you know, a lot of the activities that were mentioned are, are sort of prototypically male interests. Certainly not every male is going to hold uh, a strong interest in bushcraft or fishing or sports or anything like that. There's art, music, creativity, spirituality, fashion, design. Like there's just so many spheres that we could apply the same sort of ethos in a way that would re- would register uh, w- with a man as he sees fit. Jean-Francois, from your lens, what is the cutting edge or w- where is mental health for men going or what kind of interventions are you aware of or part of that you feel are can move the ball forward? I haven't uh, necessarily experienced it firsthand around uh, men's sheds, but I, I think that that kind of concept, I think, so it goes back to that informal peer support around an activity, around an interest, um, whether it's that wilderness, uh, you know, retreat kind of thing, um, or, you know, jamming in somebody's garage if you're a, a musician. Um, so it, it is about multiplying those opportunities for um, a combination, I would say, of, of that social support. Um, but uh, I would certainly find it interesting, you know, to have that clinical support at the same time. Uh, so that combination, I think, would be uh, certainly ideal and, and, and something that uh, uh, I would be most interested in exploring if there was something like that uh, in our area. Um, so I, I'm a little less familiar with it, but I understand that there is a new men's shed here in Ottawa. Uh, I believe it's in the downtown center town kind of area, but I believe they launched early in the pandemic. So it's been mostly virtual at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's, it's those kinds of community based programs, I think, um, that can, um, be particularly beneficial, uh, to, uh, for men in terms of, uh, uh maintaining positive mental health. Um, you know, I, not necessarily because they're in the middle of a struggle right now, um, where you might need more intensive um, interventions or supports, um, but just that ongoing maintenance, because, um, you know, it's it's something that we don't dedicate enough time to, um, that sort of self-care and what that looks like and, and how that will look like different for men. Um, it, it can be just as simple as, you know, um, you know, st- stepping out for uh, a walk or that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's it's encouraging innovative ways to uh, f- for men to sort of engage in those kinds of activities uh, that can help them, you know, mood regulate that kind of thing. Amazing. I love it. And if uh, any men out there want to start a mid-century modern style club, let me know. <laughs> um, I'm just keeping an eye on the time here. I can't believe how quickly the conversation has flown by. Uh, I want to give each of you a, a last word and maybe the opportunity to speak about maybe a resource you might identify or if people want to learn more about your work or what you do. Uh, Rob, a last word for you and perhaps where people can find out more uh, if they're interested in what you've had to say today. Um, sh- sure. So uh, I write a monthly blog for Psychology Today called Talking About Men where I discuss various aspects of men's mental health and um, people can read more uh, of my work there free of charge. Uh, and I just published a book called Men's Mental Men's Issues and Men's Mental Health where I talk about all the issues we've been talking about today, um, which is written in a style to try and be accessible to the intelligent kind of lay reader. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel called Recovery Mental Health where we uh, produce videos, documentaries, short fictional films about various issues related to men's mental health and mental health in general. And I just released um, a a trilogy of short documentaries about medical cannabis and how that can be used for mental health reasons. 
Uh, one of the videos is on the kind of origins of stigma and prejudice about cannabis. Um, another is about uh, people who use medical cannabis for anxiety and for sleep and chronic pain. Uh, and the third one is about military veterans who use medical cannabis to deal with uh, PTSD and their injuries. And uh, they're not pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis. They're just uh, neutral documentaries and they're available uh, on my YouTube channel. Excellent. Thank you. And Jean-Francois, maybe a last word from you or where you might direct people. Sure thing. Um, so, so part of my recovery journey really has been around advocacy work. Uh, that was sort of part of what I, you know, I explored through recovery was, you know, sort of a rethink of, of you know, what mattered to me and, and the type of work that matters to me. Um, and, and the issue of, you know, uh, supporting causes or driving causes has, has always been near and dear to me. Um, so uh, one of the things I did is, is I did create a website. It's, it's a little out of date, but there's still some good resources on it. Uh, called the mensden.ca. Uh, and DEN is actually an, ac an acronym, uh, Depression Education Network. Um, so that's certainly a way to contact me, you know, if you're looking for resources uh, that are geared towards men. Um, and, and again, you know what, um, wherever you are on your mental health journey, it's okay. But know that you're not alone. There is help available. There's different types of help. If you're the kind that, you know, I don't really want to talk right now, but I want to learn a bit more about maybe what I might be experiencing. Um, there are better and better online resources that 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 come aboard. Um, a good one for men that is Canadian is uh, headsupguys.ca. Uh, that's a great website to explore if you're sort of early in your stages of discovering where you're at in your mental health journey. Um, another one that is that is great. It's it's American, and I would love if we could sort of license it to have a Canadian version. But it's called the mantherapy.org. Um, and so it, it uses sort of a comedic, humorous approach to really reel men in uh, to learn about mental health and to, to, to seek help. Um, and, you know, if self-help is more your thing, there are some online resources available. Um, one that I think isn't really well known, uh, and again, for everybody, not just geared towards men, uh, is uh, wellnesstogether.ca. So Wellness Together Canada is an online platform free of charge for Canadians. It was launched during the pandemic, uh, funded by Health Canada, um, where you can access, you know, counsellors uh, if, if you're at that stage of, of, uh, of your mental health struggles. Um, but there's also online peer platforms if you just want to connect with people who are living through a similar experience. And then there's like self-help videos and other tools that you can use. So it is really much a stepped care approach. Um, and, uh, and so that is certainly a resource that's, that's available that wasn't available all that long ago uh, that is, is worth checking out. So, so thank you both for this wonderful conversation. I, I really appreciated the, the opportunity. Yes, Rob, thank you so much. And Jean-Francois, thank you so much for joining me today and for taking time out of your busy schedules and sharing your expertise, knowledge, and, and both being vulnerable and discussing some uh, what can be challenging topics. I really, really appreciate you both being here today. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks for the, in the invitation. It's been uh, thrilling. Could have gone on for the whole morning. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, fellas. Take good care. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. 
Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.